Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you're here because today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 12, studying chapters 11 through chapters 20. And these chapters are actually quite small. You'll see chapter 11 today is just a couple of lines. So what we do is we study these 10 chapters in class But students are also studying them outside of class before they come to class so that they can then have questions available in order to ask and get help and seek guidance in understanding the words of the Buddha so that you can then learn the teachings, you can reflect on them and then practice them, gaining wisdom and awaken the mind to enlightenment. As we start this program and we start each class, we actually meditate before each class and this helps to prepare the mind. In some classes we forego the meditation, some classes we don't. In this particular class I'm going to go ahead and forego the meditation because some of the chapters are a little bit longer and I'm also moderating by myself today so I'm going to be moderating, I'm going to be reading. If other people would like to read in Zoom you're welcome to read and then I'll also be teaching as well so I'd like to use all that time to be able to be sure that I can be attentive to all these different things. So if you're joining us for the first time. I'd like to welcome you. If you're joining us regularly, I'd like to welcome you also. As we go, you'll be able to ask any questions that you like. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and be able to answer any questions that you have. And what I do is I'll read the chapter first, and then I will share teachings on the chapter, and then open up to any questions that you might have. I have a few people here in Zoom, but like I mentioned, I'm without a moderator. So if anybody in Zoom would like to do some reading, just feel free to raise your hand when we get to that chapter, and I'll be sure to call on you so that you can read that particular chapter. So I'm just gonna switch over to the book now so you guys can see that, and then we'll proceed from here. So chapter 11 is the first one, and I'll go ahead and read this. Chapter 11 is titled, The Perfectly Enlightened One Prohibits Monks from Boasting About a Non-Existence of State of Further Men in Oneself. Whatever monk should speak of a condition of further men, attainment of the jhanas or stage of enlightenment, to one who is not ordained, it is a fact there is an offense of wrongdoing. Okay, so this is the part where the Buddha is teaching the actual ordained practitioners. He's teaching them that if they talk about their attainment of any of the jhanas, which are the four preliminary phases that the mind experiences before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment, 
or if they discuss their stage of enlightenment with anybody else other than ordained practitioners, then they essentially have created this offense of wrongdoing. They have essentially broken the training guidance that he's provided because as part of his guidance, he doesn't allow the ordained practitioners to talk to household practitioners about what they've attained because the typical household practitioner who maybe hasn't studied the teachings very deeply or hasn't necessarily been dedicated to learning and practicing to understand the teachings really deeply, they wouldn't be able to tell whether somebody is in a jhana or whether they're in a certain stage of enlightenment. If you've studied really deeply and you've actually attained some of these attainments, then you would know how to determine if somebody has attained one of these attainments, but that's not your goal as a practitioner. Your goal is to attain the results of this path for yourself. So with the ordained practitioners, they might talk amongst themselves because they're trying to help each other and guide each other and they're encouraging each other and they need to be able to discuss their different attainments. But in terms of discussing their attainments with household practitioners, there's no benefit to doing that. It would be boasting, it would be arrogance, it would be pride, it would be part of that fetter of conceit. And if somebody is boasting about their attainments, whether it's a household practitioner or an ordained practitioner, then this means they're going to be hindered from getting to that ultimate enlightenment as an arahant because there's still conceit or there's still arrogance there. So what questions do you guys have on this? You can either put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here on Zoom or on Facebook or YouTube. So we'll just move on to the next chapter. The next chapter is chapter 12. This one is titled, Do Not Be Judgmental Regarding People. And this first part isn't spoken by the Buddha, it's just something that is, is being said. The perfectly enlightened one said to the venerable Ananda, by reason of the female household practitioner Magasala states disagreement to the fortunate one that her father Purana was celibate living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, but her parental uncle, Astada, was not celibate, not abstaining from sexual intercourse, but lived a contented married life. When they died, the fortunate one also declared they attained to the state of a once returner and have been reborn in the Tasutta group of heavenly beings. Okay, so here what this is chapter is setting up is this female household practitioner is talking to the Buddha about her father who was celibate and no longer had sexual intercourse and her uncle continued to have intercourse. And the Buddha declared or shared or said that they were both once returners, which is the second stage of enlightenment. And when they died, they were reborn into this realm of the heavenly beings of the Tasutta group. Okay, And now the Buddha is speaking. He says, judgmental people compare them, saying, this one has just the same qualities as the other. So why is one worse and one better? This will be for their lasting harm and suffering. 
In this case, the person who is sweet-natured and has listened, learned, comprehended theoretically and found temporary freedom is better and finer than the other person. Why is that? Because the teaching stream carries him along. But who can know this difference except the Tathagata? Therefore, Ananda, do not be judgmental regarding people. Do not pass judgment on people. Those who pass judgment on people harm themselves. I alone or one like me may pass judgment on people. Okay, so here what the Buddha is basically sharing is that only a Tathagata, a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, would be able to determine what stage of enlightenment people are when they die and what's going to happen next. He's saying he doesn't recommend ordained practitioners or household practitioners to even attempt to do this because this judgment of trying to judge other beings is just going to harm yourself. Because if you're judging others, whether it's about their stage of enlightenment or any other aspect of their life, then there has to be a certain amount of conceit in the mind where you're putting yourself above or below others. Maybe you're putting yourself above people and looking down on them, or you're putting yourself below others and looking up to them with such admiration that the mind is shaken up and uncalm. So what he's sharing here is if you're practicing being judgmental towards people, it's going to harm your own mind because of that conceit that's a fetter that needs to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment. So as long as that fetter of conceit is in the mind, then one is going to hinder themselves from further progress on the path and getting to enlightenment. So you should eliminate all judgment from your mind, whether it's about your family or your friends or your co-workers or just some person that you see on the street or somebody who's driving in traffic. We shouldn't be judgmental regarding anybody. Remember back to a chapter we have studied in recent weeks where the Buddha says anything wholesome that you see somebody that has done, that you've also experienced those same things in some former life. And he also says anything unwholesome that you have observed somebody is doing, you have also done those same exact things at some point in a previous life. So it really doesn't make any sense whatsoever to judge other people because this practice is all about your own development and your own pursuit, your own independent journey to enlightenment while you're seeking guidance with teachers. So rather than judging other people and trying to figure out where they are on the path and comparing yourself to them and where they are versus where you are, instead, just stay focused on your own development, your own growth, your own inner work that you need to do. Whatever other people are experiencing, whether they're in one of the attainments or one of the stages of enlightenment, wonderful. Have sympathetic joy for them. If they're not, then okay, that's fine too. But it's not important for you as a practitioner to judge other members of the community and try to determine where they are on the path to enlightenment because that's not going to help you on your journey. Just continue to apply dedication and diligence to learning and practicing so that you can make progress. That's what's most important. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, looks like I don't see any questions here. So we'll move on to the next chapter, 
Remember, if any of you guys would like to read these chapters, feel free to raise your hand in Zoom. Since today I'm not having a moderator with me, that if you guys would like to read any, just raise your hand and I'll let you read them. So this is chapter 13. The Five Great Thieves. Monks, there are these five great thieves to be found in the world. What are the five? One, monks, hear a certain one of great thieves thought, to be sure, will I, surrounded by a hundred or by a thousand, wander about among villages, towns, in the possessions of kings, slaying and causing to be slain, destroying and causing destruction, tormenting and causing torment. He, in the course of time, surrounded by hundred or by a thousand, wanders about among villages, towns, in the possessions of kings, slaying and causing to be slain, destroying and causing destruction, tormenting and causing torment. Now indeed, monks, a certain unwholesome monk thought, to be sure, I, surrounded by a hundred or by a thousand, will make an alms tour among villages, towns, in the possessions of kings, honored, respected, appreciated, worshipped, admired, supported by householders, by those who have gone forth into homelessness, and by the requisites of robes, alms food, bedding, and medicine. He, in the course of time, surrounded by hundred, by a thousand, made, of, made an alms tour among villages, towns, the possessions of kings, honored, respected, appreciated, worshipped, admired, supported by householders, and receiving the requisites of robes, alms food, bedding, and medicine for those who go forth into homelessness. This, monks, is the first great thief found existing in the world. There's more here, but what I would like to just do is kind of teach you guys each one individually. What the Buddha is talking about here is he's talking about a ordained practitioner who is doing all this causing of destruction and all these causing all these problems in the community. Uh, they're an unwholesome monk. The Buddha talks about ordained practitioners and he says, just because you've put on a robe or you've shaved your head and you kind of follow behind me doesn't mean that you're an ordained practitioner. He uses a simile in another teaching, and I think it's in this book actually, where he says, you know, if he was a cow and he was walking and has hoof prints in the mud, but somebody else was a donkey and they were putting their hooves in the same footsteps as the cow, does it make that donkey a cow? And he's like, no, just because you're putting your feet in the same footsteps, it doesn't mean that you're a cow, you're still a donkey. So he uses this analogy to explain that just because you have a robe on and you shaved your head doesn't mean that you're an ordained practitioner. It's all about your actions and how you function. So here he's talking about an unwholesome monk, someone who is doing harm in the community, but yet they're still going out and collecting alms food. They're still collecting robes and bedding and medicines to sustain their life. So they're not really contributing to society and doing wholesome things by deeply learning the teachings and then sharing the teachings by allowing household practitioners to get access to understanding what the teachings are. So he's saying this person is a thief 
because essentially they're stealing all these offerings from the household community who's supporting them as an ordained practitioner, but yet they're not doing the work to develop their practice and share the teachings back with the community. Instead, they're doing all these unwholesome things that he's describing up here as part of this particular discourse. So then this goes on and he talks about the next type of thief. Again, monks, here a certain unwholesome monk, having mastered thoroughly teachings in the discipline made known by the Tathagata, takes it for his own. This, monks, is the second great thief found existing in the world. So here he's talking about an ordained practitioner who's unwholesome, who has learned the teachings to a certain degree, but they're not practicing them. They just know them intellectually. And now that person takes the Buddha's teachings and starts sharing the teachings, but claims that they're his teachings or her teachings. And even though they learned these teachings from the Buddha, they didn't practice them enough in order to get to levels of attainment where they are having this, you know, deep confidence about the Buddha, about his teachings, about the community. They haven't eliminated conceit and arrogance. They're not even practicing the five precepts about stealing, ensuring that you're not stealing and taking from people. So the Buddha is saying this is a thief, someone who's essentially stealing the teachings and claiming that they're the ones who discovered these teachings when in fact they're really from the Buddha. So this happens during the lifetime of the Buddha. So there were ordained practitioners that were doing that, were taking his teachings and then trying to claim and declare that they were his teachings. But they weren't. They were the Buddha's teachings. Number three, again, monks, here a certain unwholesome monk blames a follower of the pure Brahman life, one leading the absolutely pure Brahma life for an unfounded breach of the Brahma life. So in this program, we've talked about the Brahmin in the past, where there were these class of people that were about 15% of society that were Brahmin priests or Hindu priests. And these priests were there kind of doing prayers and worship and rites and rituals and things like this in order to help the people who were coming to them and paying them to do these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. But the Buddha knew that this wasn't the way to, that leads to a better way of life. Instead, it's about cultivating wisdom. And then through making wiser decisions, you experience better results. But here, the Buddha is talking about one of his ordained practitioners who is blaming the Brahmin and saying that they actually broke the kind of practices in the guidance of the Brahmin life, because in the Brahmin life, they would have their own guidance and their own teachings that they need to follow in order to practice being a Brahmin or this Brahmin priest. And the Buddha is saying, okay, this unwholesome monk is unwholesome. They're doing unwholesome things, but they're blaming a Brahmin for doing something that is unwise and unwholesome, but yet it's an unfounded you know, thing. It's, it's not a real thing. So essentially this person is gossiping and slandering. And the Buddha is saying that this is a person or a monk, a thief, someone who is stealing essentially. The fourth one here is again, monks, a certain unwholesome monk favors a, let's see, Miranda's got her hand up. Ah, I don't have my sound on. <laughs> doing too many things here. Got to 
get everything set up. All right, there we go. Sorry about that, people on Facebook and YouTube doing uh, three or four different jobs here. So I've got Miranda here now. So um, I suspect that she'd be willing to do some moderation. Miranda, I'm in this chapter, I think it's chapter 13, getting towards the end of it here. And then maybe you can take over from there. So this number four is, again, monks. A certain unwholesome monk favors and persuades a householder on account of those things which are important possessions of the community. On account of those things which are its important requisites. That is to say, a park, a site for a park, a vihara, which is a monastery, a site for a vihara, a couch, a chair, a bolster, a pillow, a brass vessel, a brass jar, a brass pot, a brass receptacle, a razor, an axe, a hatchet, a hoe, a spade, a creeper, bamboo, mungja grass, babja grass, tina grass, clay, wooden articles, earthenware articles. This monks is the fourth great thief found existing in the world. So here, what he's talking about is an unwholesome monk, again, who's doing unwholesome things in the community, who persuades a household practitioner to offer certain possessions to the community. And this is a opposite of what the Buddha actually taught, is he taught that we should await what is given, that we shouldn't put pressure on people to make offerings to ordained practitioners, or we shouldn't put pressure on students to make offerings. Instead, we should await what is given and allow people to practice generosity and make their own choices. So first, not only is this particular ordained practitioner that the Buddha is discussing unwholesome, but they're also then persuading household practitioners to make certain offerings, which is not the way of practice. A student should not feel obligated to make offerings. And when they do decide to make offerings, it should be whatever they would like to make offerings. It shouldn't be something that the teacher or the ordained practitioner is pressuring somebody to actually do. So this is the fourth thief that the Buddha is describing. This person is a thief in his eyes. The fifth one here, monks, in the world with its heavenly beings and including Mara, including the Brahma world, including aesthetics and Brahmins, including breathing things, including heavenly beings and men, this is the chief great thief. He who claims a non-existent state of further men, enlightenment, which has not been attained. What is the reason for this? Monks, you have eaten the country's alms food by theft. So here he's describing all of these different thieves. And this fifth one is connected to the teaching that we were discussing previously, chapter 11, where he doesn't teach for people to discuss their attainment. And by discussing your attainment, this is conceit and this is arrogance and this is pride. This is your own independent journey. Those attainments of the four jhanas and the four stages of enlightenment, that's for your own personal growth. It's not for you to boast about. It's not for you to wear a badge. It's not for you to go around and claim that you've attained this or that. Instead, these attainments of the jhanas and the four stages of enlightenment are for you to plot your progress 
you might talk about these things with your teacher that if you think you're in the first stage or the second stage of enlightenment or you think you've attained a certain jhana, you might discuss this with your teacher to kind of help you to determine what further work you need to do in order to get to a certain attainment. But anybody outside of your teacher, there really would be no reason to discuss it whatsoever. Not even your mom or with your dad or your life partner or your children. There's just no reason to discuss your attainments with other people. If you're experiencing more and more attainments, then just enjoy the benefits of your hard work and then enjoy life because your mind's getting more and more peaceful you should be able to just enjoy life without a desire for admiration or without a desire to boast and be prideful. Because as long as you're doing those things, it's actually hindering you from getting to the arahant stage, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind's actually enlightened. So if you go around boasting, then you're just hindering your own enlightenment and you're going to continue to experience discontentedness. One of the things that I share with people is one of the best ways to know somebody isn't enlightened is that they will tell you that they are enlightened. So if somebody's telling you that they're enlightened, then you know that they're not enlightened. Or if you're telling other people that you're enlightened, then that's a clear indication that you're not yet enlightened because an enlightened being wouldn't have a desire to go around and claim that they're enlightened. They're wise enough that if they would like to share these teachings with people, they know how to set up in such a way to allow people to learn and practice the teachings without having to tell people that they're enlightened. So the Buddha you know, really puts a lot of importance on these offerings that are made by household practitioners, that household practitioners making offerings of alms foods and robes and medicine and shelter and all these different things, this requires a certain amount of work from a household practitioner to be able to make these offerings. So he instills this kind of dedication and this responsibility of teachers and ordained practitioners, people who are living off of donations from the household practitioners. We should be very dedicated to our own practice and we should be very dedicated to sharing the teachings with those people who are interested to learn them, and particularly the people who are being supportive, whether it's their time, effort, energy, and resources, or even if people aren't making offerings to you. If they're interested to learn the teachings, then you should be interested to share the teachings with them because some people, their mind is not yet ready to make donations. Maybe they're not capable of doing that. And if we base our teachings off of the expectation that everyone needs to give an offering, then we would only teach people who are giving us an offering. And that's not the way that these teachings are designed. They're designed that we share the teachings with anybody and everybody who has a sincere interest in learning and practicing, irregardless of whether they're making offerings or not. Offerings are needed in order to maintain a teacher's livelihood to be able to have food and water, clothing, shelter, medical care, and things like this. But they shouldn't base their interest to teach on whether somebody makes offerings or not. They should be willing to teach any and all people, any and all individuals who have a sincere interest to learn and practice. Now, if a student was repeatedly disrespectful, repeatedly doing things like that, and the teacher is trying to help them to learn to no longer do those things, then it would be understandable that a teacher would ask a certain student not to come back. I've never had to do that in all the years that I've been teaching. I've never had to do that because I'll either help a student to improve what they're doing 
or on their own they will just choose to leave because they know that they've been you know highly disrespectful and they're not interested in continuing further but you know there might be a rare situation where somebody is very disrespectful and they're continuing to be disrespectful over multiple occasions and they're not heeding the guidance of the teacher but yet they still keep coming and they still keep coming and they still keep coming and in that situation it would be reasonable for a teacher to ask a student to no longer come back but that decision shouldn't be taken lightly it should be something that's deeply considered you should try multiple options to try to help the individual and then ultimately if this continues one of the best things that you could probably do is let the student know that you're no longer interested in teaching them this is their gamma and they need to be able to see that gamma whereas if they were just repeatedly disrespectful repeatedly disrespectful repeatedly disrespectful and a teacher just smiled and smiled and smiled and never did anything to help the person improve or see their way and what they're doing and if they didn't ultimately ask them to leave then this student wouldn't see their gamma that by them not practicing the teachings diligently and them being continuously disrespectful if they're continually accepted into the community then they're not seeing that their unskillful decisions are leading to unwholesome results because even though they're disrespectful they keep being accepted into the community so by a teacher ultimately sharing with a student like this which i think is very rare that this would occur that hey you know you need to you know leave and no longer come back to our community because you know we've tried to help you and you continue to be disrespectful this will help that student to perhaps see that their unwise decisions their unskillful conduct is leading to unwholesome results again it shouldn't be a decision that someone takes lightly i haven't ever had to do that before but i know that this is something that is a potential that could potentially happen so let me open up to any questions that you guys have on this particular chapter and i would like to look at the chat because let's see i didn't see the chat before miranda joined okay that was kuna helping us with the sound okay so miranda are you able to moderate or are you at a place where you're not able to do that yes sir take over moderation okay mm -hmm. perfect so i haven't seen any questions yet that was chapter 13 and now we're on chapter 14. um it does not appear there are any questions at this time on youtube and on facebook sir okay so I can either keep reading or if there's someone else who would like to read, I'm willing to, you know, let other people participate if they'd like. Uh, I don't have any volunteers for reading at this time, but I can read every other chapter with you. Okay, that sounds good. It sounds like your sound's going in and out a little bit. I'm not sure if uh, you're on a different device than normal, but it's not as clear as, as normal. Oh, okay. Um, I'll try to fix that, sir. Okay. <clears throat> Um, a noble disciple abandons wrong livelihood. Therein, monks, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood, and right livelihood as right livelihood. This is one's right view. And what, monks, is wrong livelihood? <clears throat> Excuse me. Scheming, flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing game with game, this is wrong livelihood. 
and what monks is right livelihood. Right livelihood, I say, is twofold. There is right livelihood that is affected by taints or fetters, taking part in merit, ripening in the material gain, and there is right livelihood that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path. And what monks is right livelihood that is affected by taints, taking part in merit, ripening in the material gain. Here monks, a noble disciple abandons wrong livelihood and gains his living by right livelihood. And this is right livelihood that is affected by taints, taking part in merit, ripening in the material gain. And what monks is right livelihood that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path? The desisting from wrong livelihood, the abstaining, refraining, withholding from it in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right livelihood that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path. <clears throat> one makes an effort to abandon wrong livelihood and to enter upon right livelihood. This is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong livelihood. Mindfully, one enters upon and resides in right livelihood. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three states <clears throat> run in circle around right livelihood, that is, right view, right effort, right mindfulness. Therein, monks, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? In one of right view, right intention comes into being. In one of right intention, right speech comes into being. In one of right speech, right action comes into being. In one of right action, right livelihood comes into being. In one of right livelihood, right effort comes into being. In one of right effort, right mindfulness comes into being. In one of right mindfulness, right concentration comes into being. In one of right concentration, right wisdom comes into being. In one of right wisdom, right liberation comes into being. And thus, monks, the path of the disciple in higher training possesses eight factors, the arahant possesses ten factors. Therein, monks, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? In one of right view, wrong view is abolished, and the many evil, unwholesome states that originate with wrong view as condition are also abolished. And the many wholesome states that originate with right view as condition come to fulfillment by development. In one of right intention, wrong intention is abolished, and the many evil or wholesome states that originate with wrong intention as condition are also abolished. And the many wholesome states that originate with right intention as condition come to fulfillment by development. In one of right speech, wrong speech is abolished, in one of right action, wrong action is abolished. In one of right livelihood, wrong livelihood is abolished. In one of right effort, wrong effort is abolished. In one of right mindfulness, wrong mindfulness is abolished. In one of right concentration, wrong concentration is abolished. In one of right wisdom, wrong wisdom is abolished. In one of right liberation, wrong liberation is abolished. And the many evil, unwholesome states that originate with wrong liberation as condition are also abolished. And the many wholesome states that originate with right liberation as condition come to fulfillment by development. 
<clears throat> Thus, monks, there are 20 factors on the side of the wholesome and 20 factors on the side of the unwholesome. This teaching's discourse on the great 40 has been set rolling and cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or God or Mara or Brahma or anyone in the world. Monks, if any ascetic or Brahmin thinks that this teaching's discourse on the great 40 should be criticized and rejected, then there are 10 legitimate deductions from his assertions that would provide grounds for finding fault with him here and now. If that worthy one finds fault with right view, then he would honor and praise those ascetics and Brahmins who are of wrong view. If that worthy one finds fault with right intention, then he would honor and praise those ascetics and Brahmins who are of wrong intention. If that worthy one finds fault with right speech, then if that worthy one finds fault with right action, if that worthy one finds fault with right livelihood, if that worthy one finds fault with right effort, if that worthy one finds fault with right mindfulness, if that worthy one finds fault with right concentration, if that worthy one finds fault with right wisdom, if that worthy one finds fault with right liberation, then he would honor and praise those ascetics and Brahmins who are of wrong liberation. <clears throat> Excuse me. If any ascetic or Brahmin thinks that this teaching's discourse on the great 40 should be criticized and rejected, then these are 10 legitimate deductions from his assertions that would provide grounds for finding fault with him here and now. Monks, even those teachers from Okla, Vasa, and Banya, who held the doctrine of non-causality, the doctrine of non-action, and the doctrine of nihilism, would not think that this discourse of the teachings on the Great Forty should be criticized and rejected. Why is that? For fear of blame, attack, and evidence that they are incorrect. All right. Thank you, Miranda. This is a really, really meaty discourse. So I'm going to take my time and go through it and see what questions you guys have as we go. So far in the group learning program and everything else that you've studied about right livelihood, we essentially talk about the five wrong livelihoods or the five trades not to be plied, which is business in weapons, business in living beings, business in meat, business in substances that cause heedlessness, and business in poisons. These are the five trades not to be plied because each one of these trades, if you practice any of those livelihoods, then you're going to be causing harm in the world and therefore harm is going to come to you. And then we also talk about this part right here in the group learning program about scheming, flattering, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. And essentially, this kind of gets you to a point where you're practicing some level of right livelihood. And the Buddha goes on here to explain two different aspects of right livelihood. There's right livelihood, which is what I've taught so far, which is this first aspect of right livelihood, which is it's a livelihood that is still affected by the taints, meaning that there's still craving in the mind, that the livelihood isn't fully purified yet. It is a right livelihood, but it's not fully purified because the livelihood that we might be participating in is still being affected by maybe there's a craving for 
a certain title or maybe there's a craving and ego is arising because you want to be better than somebody else or something like this. But he says as part of this kind of first level of right livelihood, even though it's being affected by the fetters, there's still a practice of merit where somebody is donating their time, effort, energy, and resources towards the continuation of the teachings. And they're experiencing a certain amount of material gain in that livelihood, meaning that they're, you know, developing a certain amount of wealth, right, as part of that livelihood. So that's kind of like what you would like to do if you are, you know, kind of moving into right livelihood is you would like to at least get to this level of right livelihood. But then in order to get your livelihood fully purified so that you can get to enlightenment, you need to move to this other aspect of right livelihood where the Buddha talks about this right livelihood that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path. Now the livelihood's fully purified. Previous that we were talking about, it is a right livelihood, but it's not fully purified. So you could be doing a job that in this first part of right livelihood that you wake up, you go to, you kind of generally do it, but you know, your heart's not really in it. It's not really truly what you would like to be doing, but you're making a living at it. You're able to kind of meet your obligations. You're making some wealth and you kind of feel okay about what you're doing. But this other livelihood that the Buddha is talking about, that you find this particular occupation or this particular lifestyle where this is what gets your juices flowing. This is what, you know, when you wake up in the morning and it's time to go to work, for example, you don't even feel like you're going to work, like almost to the point where you could go to this livelihood and you could work there. And even if you didn't collect a paycheck, you'd be completely fine with that. You need to collect a paycheck because you need to buy food and water and clothing and shelter and all these other things. But when your livelihood is fully purified, you know without a shadow of a doubt that you could do this job for the rest of your life and be completely content with that. And you just feel so enthused about this work. You feel so motivated about it. You feel like you're really contributing in a certain way. And that's how you know that your livelihood is fully purified because you would do this livelihood even if you would get paid to do it. It doesn't even feel like work any longer. And this is one who's fully purified their livelihood. So the Buddha goes in and describes this in a bit more detail, this first aspect of right livelihood, and then the second one that I've just described for you. And in the explanation that I gave for this chapter, I go through and I explain this in detail. I wrote a whole lot about this particular chapter. But let me just skip down to here because I don't have time to cover every single thing that I wrote about is I would like to talk about the tenfold path. This is something that a fully enlightened being, a arahant, someone who actually is enlightened, is going to be practicing a tenfold path. The eightfold path is what leads to enlightenment. And there's specific details of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You need to learn that Eightfold Path like the back of your hand and practice it very, very deeply to purify the mind. And as you do this and you get closer and closer to enlightenment, once the mind is actually enlightened, there's two additional steps on the path that an enlightened being is practicing. 
they're not taught like there's no teaching like with right intention there's three aspects of right intention the intention of renunciation the intention of non-ill will and the intention of harmlessness these are three aspects that you need to deeply understand and then practice same thing with right speech right action all these others there's very detailed specific things that you need to learn and practice what right wisdom is is it's essentially the culmination of all of the work that you do on this path that you understand these teachings so well that you can explain them effortlessly. An enlightened being would be able to sit down somewhere and they're at a smoothie shop sipping on a smoothie and somebody walks up to them and says, hey, don't you practice those teachings from the Buddha? And you're like, yeah, I sure do. And like, can you tell me what right action is? I've been curious about what that is. What is right action? And a person who's enlightened would have right wisdom and they would be able to explain right action, you know, very easy, very effortlessly or any other aspect of the path to enlightenment because they're practicing it on a day in, day out basis. They would have had to cultivate an enormous amount of wisdom in order to get to enlightenment. So therefore, they'd be able to discuss it with ease. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that they're a teacher. It doesn't mean that they're seeking students to learn with them but an enlightened being would just be able to easily describe the teachings. And then the 10th factor is also something that doesn't get described in terms of you need to practice these things in order to practice right liberation. Instead, right liberation is a culmination and benefit and results of practicing the Eightfold Path. What right liberation is, is that the mind is no longer experiencing any discontent feelings whatsoever. So if somebody has right wisdom, they can easily describe the teachings without any effort at all. It's effortless. And with right liberation, you'll never see this person angry or sad or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. Not even the slightest little dislike or complaining about anything. Their mind would just be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's completely liberated. They're experiencing right liberation. The mind is just utterly peaceful and joyful all the time. They're never in a bad mood. They're never disgruntled. It doesn't matter what challenges they're facing. They can face everything that they encounter and do it with ease because they're now functioning effortlessly through these teachings. These are the tenfold path. Those extra two steps are what an enlightened being is going to be practicing as a result of having cultivated the mind and purifying it through the Eightfold Path. I think that's most of what I would like to discuss here. If you guys have questions, uh, you're welcome to ask questions, but as you see here in the description, I explain this in a lot of detail. There's maybe six or eight pages, maybe 10 pages here of me explaining. This is probably one of the discourses that I spent the most uh, time explaining because it's so meaty and there's so much there. It's so elaborate. So if you read through this, you'll be able to learn all the various details of what this particular discourse is sharing. But if you guys have questions from what you've read or what we've been discussing today, feel free to ask those and I will help you with them. Um, yes, sir. Just kind of a really kind of seems like a silly thing, but I guess it's really not. Part of the job that I have um, helping to care for the elderly is taking food orders. And I had asked before about 
a server who's serving food in the U.S. typically would be serving meat. And that's typically the choices that are given for food for these people is, you know, either one meat choice or another meat choice for dinner. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that it, that's wrong livelihood as an aspect of my job to go to these people and ask them, would you like this or that to eat for dinner and then bringing it to their room? If you're looking at what the Buddha taught, that it is wrong livelihood because it's a business in meat and that's one aspect of what needs to be purified in order to get to a purified, fully purified right livelihood. But it's important to understand that the world isn't set up in such a way in terms of this type of occupation that you could easily practice your job as a resident care or whatever it is that your title is without doing that particular activity. So while people are working on this path in sometimes in some situations an individual's practice is further along on the path than what kind of society can kind of support so ideally you know 500 years from now thousand years from now as more and more people learn and practice these teachings and there's more and more opportunities where people aren't needing to perform that type of function because there isn't any meat being sold because human beings have now purified that from their their practice. If you were interested in purifying your livelihood, you know, more readily, you could find a position or a job that doesn't include that. But always keep in mind that, you know, there's in some places, there's only limited amount of occupations. There's only a limited amount of jobs. There's only certain incomes that can support you in certain roles. And it's not like you should snap your fingers and run out and feel like you need to, you know, change your job right now. Because in terms of the the harm that's being caused is the individual who's eating the meat, they're experiencing the most harm in the situation. But someone whose livelihood it is to serve meat or facilitate the meat being ingested as part of their livelihood, they're facilitating that harm to occur. So that's why it is a wrong livelihood. But you need to kind of manage all of this with the understanding that, you know, the world isn't in such a place right now on this particular topic that might make it easy for you to be able to potentially have a job where there isn't any meat being served. Because whether it's the job that you're talking about or even like a cashier at a grocery store that sells meat or, you know, there's meat being sold in so many places now that there are livelihoods, of course, that don't include that. But for some people, there's not going to be very many options in their hometown to be able to, you know, have a livelihood that doesn't include these kind of things. So the harm here is fairly minimal. But ultimately, you would probably like to get to a livelihood where you're not needing to uh, serve meat as part of your your job. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. And it does not appear there are any questions uh, on Facebook and YouTube at this time, sir. All right. So let's go to the next chapter, which is all the way down here, (laughs) chapter 15. So I think I'm going to be taking this one, right, Miranda? Yes, sir. 
yes, if you would, sir. Okay, chapter 15. Six cases of incapability by one accomplished in view. First discourse. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is incapable of considering any conditioned phenomenon or thing as permanent. Two, incapable of considering any conditioned phenomenon or thing as pleasurable. Three, incapable of considering any phenomenon thing as a self. Four, incapable of doing a grave act that brings immediate results. Five, incapable of resorting to the belief that purity or enlightenment comes about through superstitious and auspicious acts. Six, incapable of seeking a person worthy of offerings outside of here. These are the six cases of incapability. Okay, so what the Buddha is talking about here is somebody who's deeply established in right view and is accomplished in right view, they would be incapable of doing these things. Because if you've established right view very deeply, you wouldn't be able to do these things. And we've got a several chapters here where the Buddha is going to explain six different things in each one of the discourses that a person who's accomplished in right view wouldn't actually do. The first one here is incapable of considering any conditioned phenomenon as permanent. So if you understand right view and you're cultivating the wisdom of right view, then you would understand the three universal truths. That's what the first three of this relate to. As a very beginning teaching, when you first start off on the path, you would understand the three universal truths and you would be incapable of describing something that is conditioned as being permanent because you would understand the universal truth of impermanence. So if somebody asks you, is this phone permanent or impermanent? You'd be able to know it's impermanent. Is this physical body permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent. Is this computer permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent. Is this class that we're in right now, is it permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent. So a person would know that all these conditioned phenomenon are impermanent. They wouldn't be able to consider any of these things permanent. The next one, he talks about a conditioned phenomenon that is pleasurable. And what he's talking about here is discontentedness and pleasant feelings. When you're enlightened, you will have enjoyable experiences. You will have lots of joy. You will have more joy than you ever did when you were unenlightened um, because you're never going to experience the anger and frustration and irritation and all those other discontent feelings that are very painful. So as an enlightened being, you will experience unconditioned joy. The mind is just always joyful, but you would be incapable of describing any conditioned phenomenon or conditioned thing as pleasurable. In other words, you're going to know that this phone is impermanent and you're not going to be, oh, this phone is so pleasurable. It gives me so many good things. Oh, I, I really enjoy this phone so, so, so much. I, I can't live without it. A person who is accomplished in view wouldn't think that way. They would just know like, yeah, it's a phone. It's impermanent. I'm going to use it. And at some point it's going to be no longer usable and I'll need to get a new phone. 
rather than taking you know this extreme pleasure in having this phone or when you get a new phone you know okay now you buy a new phone okay there's a new phone now i've got the ability to use this new phone but i'm not going to take all this pleasure in it because it's a conditioned object and that's a a danger to the mind if you allow the mind to take pleasure in a conditioned object because it's only a matter of time before that condition changes and now you're going to experience painful feelings as a result if you allow the mind to get these conditioned pleasant feelings then when those conditions change, you're going to experience painful feelings. So a person who's accomplished in view wouldn't allow the mind to do those things. They wouldn't consider the phenomenon or the thing as pleasurable. A person who's accomplished in view is not necessarily enlightened. You can actually be accomplished in view and be in the jhanas or be in the first stage of enlightenment. So here the Buddha is saying you wouldn't consider a phenomenon pleasurable, but the mind is still doing things where it's latching on. So intellectually, the Buddha is saying, okay, a person accomplished in view wouldn't consider a conditioned phenomenon pleasurable, but the way that this person is practicing because they're not yet enlightened, they're still, their mind is still craving permanence in certain situations and still taking conditioned pleasure in certain situations. And that's why it's still experiencing conditioned painful feelings too. But intellectually, this person would know that they wouldn't consider any condition, phenomenon, or thing as pleasurable. And then the same thing about a phenomenon as being a self is that a person who's accomplished in view wouldn't be able to discern a self anywhere because essentially what the Buddha is talking about with someone who's accomplished in view is someone who's gotten to the first stage of enlightenment. In order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would need to have eliminated personal existence view. And a person who's eliminated personal existence view would understand the universal truth of non-self and they wouldn't consider this body or this mind as being the self. So they wouldn't be able to discern or find or discover a self anywhere because they would have already done that reflection and they would know that there is no self here. The fourth one, the Buddha is referring to what some people call the, the five heinous crimes or the five heinous acts or the five unwholesome acts. These are down here in this chapter where essentially if one is accomplished in view, they would be incapable of killing their mother, killing their father, killing an otter hunt, harming a Buddha, or creating division in the community. Because by the time that you've gotten to having accomplishment in view, you're at that first stage of enlightenment, you've seen a significant diminishing of discontentedness. And you know without a shadow of a doubt that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind. You would have this respect and admiration and gratitude towards your parents, and you would never be able to kill your mother or your father. You would also have a certain amount of gratitude and respect and admiration for an otter hunt or an enlightened being. Because those are the people, the otter hunts or enlightened beings, those are the individuals who are sharing the teachings with others and helping others get to enlightenment, perhaps. There's going to be some enlightened beings and otter hunts who don't teach, but there's going to be some who do to choose to teach. And you wouldn't be interested in killing them because you know how impactful these teachings have been for your own life, so you wouldn't be able to kill an enlightened being or harm a Buddha because a Buddha's 
a person who's bringing the teachings into the world in a way that they can really shine and countless individuals can get to enlightenment based on a Buddhist teachings and you wouldn't be interested in harming that individual in any way. And you also wouldn't be interested in creating division in the community of practitioners by gossiping or slandering or something like this because you understand that one accomplished in view that having a strong community is helping everybody get to enlightenment. Not only is enlightened beings and a Buddha sharing teachings to help people get to enlightenment, but a community of practitioners is supporting and encouraging and motivating each other as well and helping you along the path. And the last thing you would be interested in doing for one accomplished in view is creating division in the community. You would be interested in seeing this community stay together and stay whole. And then this fifth one is a person who's accomplished in view would be incapable of resorting to the belief that enlightenment comes through essentially rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, or some superstitious or auspicious act, like sprinkling water on you, or ringing a bell, or doing some chant, or you know, praying to the Buddha, all of these different things and others, they're not going to lead to enlightenment. So a person who is accomplished in view would be incapable of considering superstition or auspicious acts as what leads to enlightenment because they would understand that it's the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. That's the main hindrance of all hindrances. And the way to antidote that is through wisdom. And it's wisdom that improves the condition of the mind and helps you get to enlightenment. And you can't cultivate wisdom through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, or some superstitious or auspicious acts. So a person who's accomplished in view would deeply understand this because they understand dependent origination. Dependent origination is the highest ultimate truth that the Buddha explained and helps you to understand the 12 links or the 12 chains that lead to discontentedness and that lead to rebirth. It's the Four Noble Truths that gets right to the heart of the matter and explains that it's craving, desire, attachment that causes discontentedness. But in reality, the Buddha explains in dependent origination these 12 links that ultimately lead to discontentedness and rebirth. And at the very top of that is ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. So it's wisdom that transforms that, not superstition or auspicious acts. And then the sixth one, is if somebody's accomplished in view, again, they're in that first stage of enlightenment, they've had this significant diminishing of discontentedness, even though they still are experiencing discontentedness, they know without a shadow of a doubt, these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind. So someone who's experiencing that would be incapable of making an offering to somebody outside of the Buddha's community. The Buddha's during his lifetime, there were other teachers who were teaching and they were claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. But somebody who's learning the Buddhist teachings, they would know what leads to enlightenment because the Buddha knew that these other teachers, what they were sharing didn't actually lead to enlightenment. And people were making offerings to all of those different teachers and helping them and providing them offerings. But if somebody deeply understood the teachings of the Buddha and became accomplished in view, 
the Buddha would say that they would be incapable of giving an offering to another you know, community because they would know without a shadow of a doubt that it's his teachings that are leading to enlightenment and they would only be interested in supporting that community. That's what he's explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. On Facebook, Kayla asks, um, why is the grave act so specific to just those five? Shouldn't we not kill anyone? Yes, that would be the situation of someone who is in the first stage of enlightenment. They wouldn't be able to kill a living being for the sake of, you know, just killing to be killing, right? But the Buddha is describing these five because in order to get accomplished in view, you would need to have that gratitude, appreciation, and respect for your parents. You would need to understand what an enlightened being is and all that they're offering to the world, what a Buddha is and what they're offering to the world. And then also that fifth one, which is the division in the community. You would understand that you wouldn't, wouldn't do those things. But a situation where someone is in the first stage of enlightenment, let's just say that they have a situation where they're in the first stage of enlightenment. They're resting at home. It's two or three in the morning. Someone breaks into their house with a gun, holds them hostage. But in one way or another, that person was able to get out of the situation. But in order to do that, they had to kill this other being in order to do that. That is where you understand the gray area, right? You're not going to just sit there and let this person who came in at two or three a.m. in the morning kill you and kill the people around you if it's possible for you to remedy this situation with the least amount of harm as possible then you would do that but in a certain situation you might find that the only option is to potentially kill this individual and this is where you don't need to have any discontentedness or any guilt shame or fear in that situation because that person is getting their gamma if they're breaking into your house at 3 a.m. in the morning, they're not delivering flowers and chocolates, right? They're coming to do harm, and now harm has come to them based on their decisions. But your parents aren't going to break into your house to try to do that. An enlightened being isn't going to do that. A Buddha is not going to do that. So that's why the Buddha is explaining here that you would be incapable of doing this. But a stream enter, which is the first stage of enlightenment, may be in a situation where they do need to kill another being. It's not something desirable. It's not something you look for. But that individual still hasn't extinguished all their unwholesome gamma because they're not yet enlightened. So they could potentially experience a situation like that where they do need to take a life of somebody, not because of their choice, but because of the other person's choices, because of that other person's decision to break in at 3 a.m. in the morning with a gun, with a knife, what have you then this harm is coming to them. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. On Zoom, Chantana asks, does dependent origination, the same as the natural law of existence and the natural law of comma, if not, what is the difference? So I use the word the natural laws of existence to encompass all the Buddhist teachings. So anything that you learn in terms of the Buddhist teachings, these are the natural laws of existence, which dependent origination and the natural law of gamma are two of the most significant 
natural laws of existence that he teaches. But then there's all these other teachings that he shares as well. But these are the two main natural laws that he's teaching. And I just describe all of them as the natural laws of existence with dependent origination being the highest ultimate truth and the natural law of gamma being the main natural law that he's actually teaching throughout his teachings. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, about this incapable, the number six, incapable of seeking a person worthy of offerings outside here. Does this, I mean, obviously, if we go to a temple or an activity that's being put on by um, ordained practitioners, we should still bring some type of an offering, correct, sir? It's advisable, but it's not required. Everybody who decides to go visit a temple or goes to some particular event, you shouldn't feel obligated to make an offering. Oftentimes people do make some sort of offering, even if when they get there, they just donate their time and effort and energy to stack up some chairs, to sweep the floor, to do different things like this. This is an offering as well. But it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily bring a bag of rice or eggs or food. These are things that people will typically take to a temple when they go to visit. But it's not required because not everybody can afford to do that in the world. For some people, the sweeping, the stacking the chairs, the things like this is what they can offer. There shouldn't be any expectation from the teachers or from the ordained practitioners that there is an offering. But it's wise for you to choose to offer and practice generosity to create merit in that situation. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what's being spoken of here, or is this something like seeking another teacher or an ordained practitioner outside of their their community to support? Yes. I'm just kind of trying to clarify what what exactly is being spoken of here. Yeah, what he's talking about is making essentially any giving any support to any other community outside of his community. And it's not that he's trying to dictate for people not to do that. But what he's saying is that if you're accomplished in view, that means you deeply understand these teachings. You've gotten to that first stage of enlightenment. You've got this diminishing of discontentedness and you by yourself will no longer choose to make offerings to other people because you know that it's these teachings 100% sure that are leading to enlightenment. And why would I support these other teachings that aren't leading to enlightenment? Because that's not benefiting the world. These teachings are the ones that are benefiting the world. So he's not saying that you can't make an offering to somebody else because he's not making rules and commandments towards what people should or shouldn't do. He's just saying somebody who's accomplished in view and got into the point where their mind has experienced this certain amount of progress to the first stage of enlightenment, they wouldn't be interested in making an offering somewhere else. There is another place in his teachings where he shares that if somebody deeply practices his teachings, that they wouldn't be capable of taking on a teacher from any other community, that it would only be his community that they would be willing to take up a teacher from. And it's the same rationale, the same reasoning that if you're accomplished in view and you've developed your mind to the point where you're experiencing the benefits of the first stage of enlightenment, you wouldn't be able to turn your back on that teacher. You wouldn't be able to walk away from that teaching. You wouldn't be able to 
find another teacher because you've experienced so much benefit in those particular teachings that you would be incapable of making an offering outside of his community and he shares in other teachings that you would be incapable of learning from a teacher outside of his community because you would know without a shadow of a doubt that it's these teachings that are leading to your improved condition of mind. Yes, thank you, sir. Andil mm -hmm. um, Alexo asks, kind sir, can you please elaborate on the differences between having pleasure and detachment and clinging in conditioned phenomena and having joy in conditioned phenomena? Sure. So uh, a enlightened being isn't going to have joy in a conditioned phenomenon because a condition is a conditioned feeling. So for example, if it's sunny outside, a, an unenlightened being might be happy because of the condition that it's sunny outside. And now when it rains, an unenlightened being is going to perhaps be sad or angry or frustrated because that condition has changed. They were basing their happiness and their excitement on the sun. And now when that's changed and it's raining, now they're going to experience those painful feelings, the anger, the sadness, the frustration. So that's somebody who's taking pleasure in a certain conditioned phenomenon. An enlightened being doesn't do that. If, uh, if it's sunny outside, they're joyful, but not joyful because it's sunny. They're just joyful. And then because they're just joyful, having unconditioned joy, then when it starts raining and they can't go do whatever it is that they were planning to go do, they can still maintain their joy because they didn't base their joy on the sun. They didn't base their joy on going outside and doing certain activities. So then when the weather changes because of impermanence, they can still maintain their joy. Even if they stay inside, even if they go to a movie instead of doing an outdoor activity or whatever, they're still going to be able to maintain their joy because their joy isn't based on any condition. It's unconditioned joy. It's just always there. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, does not appear we have any other questions at this time. All right, so we'll go to the next one, which is chapter 16. Yes, sir. Six Cases of Incapability by One Accomplished in View, Second Discourse. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is, one, incapable of residing without deep respect and politeness toward the teacher. Two, incapable of residing without deep respect and politeness towards the teachings. Three, Incapable of residing without deep respect and politeness toward the community. Four, incapable of residing without deep respect and politeness toward the training. Five, incapable of resorting to anything that should not be relied upon. Six, incapable of undergoing an eighth existence. These are the six cases of incapability. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here, once again, this is somebody accomplished in view. He's just describing what they are going to be incapable of. And this is someone who's at the first stage of enlightenment. If someone's at the first stage of enlightenment, again, they've experienced a certain amount of progress on the path, a significant diminishing of discontentedness. So they would be incapable of residing without deep respect and politeness for the teacher who helped guide them to get to that point, to the teachings, 
the community that they're part of and the training that they've undergone. They would be incapable of residing without respect because they know what it felt like to be angry and sad and frustrated and all these other discontent feelings. And now with this significant progress, still not enlightened, but significant progress, they would have deep respect and politeness and admiration and appreciation for all of these things, the teacher, the teachings, the community, and the training that they experienced. This fifth one, resorting to anything that should not be relied upon. A person who's accomplished in view isn't going to make assumptions. They're not going to have perceptions about things. They're going to investigate whatever is going on, and they're going to ensure that they know the truth before they make any decisions and before they move forward or as they are moving forward. They're going to investigate all the various things. So they're not going to just assume a bunch of things about people or about a situation. They're going to ensure that they know the truth and collect up that truth, and then they're going to make whatever decisions they're making. That's what the Buddha is describing here. And then the sixth one is incapable of undergoing an eighth existence. This is because as a stream enter the first stage of enlightenment, you're going to, at that stage, have a maximum of seven more existences. You may have one, you may have two, you may have four, you may have six, you may have seven, but you're not going to have an eighth one. That's what the Buddha is explaining here, that there is no eighth existence for a stream enter. And somebody can actually get to stream entry and keep on going to once returner, non-returner, and otter hunt. But if you die as a stream enter, you won't be reborn any more than seven times before you ultimately will get to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, on Zoom, Chantana asks, when you explain the word enlightened being, do you mean fully enlightened being, arhat, or do you mean the first stage of enlightenment and the other stages also? When I say an enlightened being, what I'm referring to is an arahant. A person isn't enlightened until they get to the fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant. So that's where someone is actually enlightened. A fully enlightened being is actually a perfectly enlightened Buddha, a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. So that's what we refer to as a perfectly enlightened one or a fortunate one, a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. Others could be described as an arahant or an enlightened being. This is the fourth stage. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm doesn't appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we'll go to chapter 17. I think it's my turn to read, which is, this is the six cases of incapability by one accomplished in view, third discourse. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is incapable of depriving his mother of life incapable of depriving his father of life, incapable of depriving a, an otter hunt of life, incapable of shedding the Tathagata's blood with a mind of hatred, incapable of creating division in the community, incapable of acknowledging another teacher. These are the six cases of incapability. These here are these first five are the ones we discussed previously. And then the sixth one is the one that I was just talking about, how 
once somebody is accomplished in view, they would be incapable of acknowledging another teacher because they know that it was that teacher that guided them to the first stage of enlightenment. They're experiencing that diminishing of discontentedness and it would be impossible for them to decide to go find another teacher because they already know without a shadow of a doubt that it was this particular teacher that guided them to that first stage of enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we're off to chapter 18. Uh, six cases of incapability by one accomplished in view or discourse. Monks, there are these six cases of incapability. What six? One accomplished in view is one, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are made by oneself. Two, incapable, I'm sorry, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are made by another. Three, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are both made by oneself and made by another. Four, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are not made by oneself, but have arisen by accident or chance. Five, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are not made by another, but have arisen by accident or chance. Six, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are made neither by oneself nor by another, but have arisen by accident or chance. These are the six cases of incapability. For what reason? Because the person accomplished in view has clearly seen causation and causally arisen objects. These are the six cases of incapability. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So what the Buddha is describing here is someone accomplished in view would deeply understand the Four Noble Truths. They would understand what causes conditioned pleasant feelings and conditioned painful feelings and its craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness, the yearning, the, the chasing after the objects of your affection, that these pleasant and painful feelings aren't made by oneself because there is no self. These pleasant feelings and painful feelings are caused by craving, desire, attachment. They would be incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are made by another person. This is typically what we do in the unenlightened state is we blame other people for our anger, our sadness, our frustration, or any other discontent feelings that we have. We blame others. But someone who's accomplished in view would be incapable of doing that uh, because they would deeply know that any discontentedness that they're experiencing is a result of their own cravings, desires, attachments. And then they would be incapable of resorting to the view that this pleasure and pain are made both by oneself and made by another, because these things are also wrong as well. They're not the truth. And then not only is that true, but someone who's accomplished a view would be incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are not made by oneself, but arisen by accident or chance. No, this isn't just by happenstance that discontentedness arises. It comes from craving, desire, attachment. And a person accomplished in view would know that. Pleasure and pain are not made by another, but have arisen by accident or chance. So same thing as the one previous, essentially. 
And then the sixth one, incapable of resorting to the view that pleasure and pain are made neither by oneself nor by another, but has been arisen by accident or chance. This is essentially the Buddha talking in a way that's all-encompassing so that people can't kind of slip in and modify what he's saying here. He's covering all his bases and making sure that he covers all the different options. What questions do you guys have? Oh, let me just share this last one here. Is What he's saying here is he's saying, because the person accomplished in view has clearly seen causation in causally arisen objects. And essentially what he's saying is, a person who's accomplished in view would understand the cause of discontentedness and that cause is craving, desire, attachment. They would know that because craving, desire, attachment exists in the mind, this is what has arisen the discontentedness. And someone who's accomplished in view would clearly see that because they would have learned it first, then they would have reflected on it and independently verified it. Then they would have practiced to such a point that they would have had to eliminate a certain amount of craving, desire, attachments in order to get to accomplishment in view and diminished a certain amount of discontentedness in the mind. So somebody who's accomplished in view would have already observed this for themselves and independently verified it. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we go to chapter 19. So this would be me reading this one. Six benefits in realizing the fruit of stream entry. So stream entry is the first stage of enlightenment and the fruit is the benefit. Monks, there are these six benefits in realizing the fruit of stream entry. What six? One is fixed in the wholesome teachings. Two, one is incapable of decline. Three, one's discontentedness is limited. Four, one comes to possess wisdom not shared by others. Five, one has clearly seen causation. Six, one has clearly seen causally arisen objects. These are the six benefits in realizing the fruit of stream entry. So here, if somebody has achieved accomplishment in view, they would deeply understand the teachings in order to get to that point. And the Buddha is saying that this person is fixed in the wholesome teachings. In other words, they have no doubts. They are fixed knowing that it's these teachings, 100% certainty, that's led to their improvements in the condition of their mind. And having gotten to the first stage of enlightenment, your mind is incapable of regressing or declining. Your mind will never slip out of the first stage of enlightenment. When you are in those jhanas, the four preliminary phases before you get to the first stage of enlightenment, the mind can regress backwards. It can decline. But when you're in that first stage of enlightenment, it can't decline backwards from that. Same thing when you get to the second, the third, the fourth, your mind won't regress backwards because you've extinguished those fetters that you needed in order to get to that stage of enlightenment and those will never arise again. So the mind is permanently moving through those stages of enlightenment, ultimately getting to the ultimate goal. So it wouldn't regress or decline. This is what we've been talking about in this particular class and others, where once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, discontentedness has gradually diminished to a certain degree. The Buddha is describing it as limited, 
there's still discontentedness in the mind of a stream enter, of a once returner, and even a non-returner, that third stage of enlightenment. There's still a little bit of ickiness, there's still a little bit of discontentedness. It's not until you get to the fourth stage as an otter hunt that the mind is actually enlightened and all discontentedness is eliminated. In the stage of a stream enter, the first stage of enlightenment, the discontentedness has significantly diminished or what the Buddha is describing here is, is limited. And then you're also going to possess certain wisdom that others aren't aware of. Other people are going to be blaming people for their anger and their sadness. Other people are going to be using substances that cause heedlessness. Other people are going to be having sexual misconduct and not understanding why they're having difficulties in their relationships. But you're going to understand these things. And that's where it's really important that you remain humble and you remain without arrogance, without conceit, without pride, because that can obsess the mind and, and it can the mind can become very judgmental when you see that you have all this wisdom that other people don't have. So it's important to remain humble, but you're going to have wisdom that other people don't have. And that's the results of your decisions of having investigated the teachings and practiced to this point. And then we just talked about causation and causally uh, arisen objects that you will have seen those as well and you will know the cause and effect. Essentially what he's talking about here is the natural law of gamma, of the Four Noble Truths, the dependent origination, all of these different teachings, you will have seen those clearly. You won't necessarily be practicing all these things 100% because that's what an enlightened being is doing, but you will at least see very clearly that yes, dependent origination is 100% the truth because you learned it, you reflected on it, you investigated it, you independently verified it, and now you're starting to practice that particular teaching and all the other aspects of causation and causally arisen objects. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. Three wrong views about sectarian tenets that a noble disciple must abandon. Monks, there are these three sectarian tenets which, when questioned, interrogated, and cross-examined by the wise and taken to their conclusion, will eventuate in non-action. What are the three? One, there are monks, some ascetics and Brahmins, who hold such a doctrine and view such as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by what was done in the past. Two, there are other ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. Three, and there are still other ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that occurs without a cause or condition. A view that whether pleasure or pain are all caused by past deeds. Monks, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by past deeds. And I said to them, 
Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is due to past deeds that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on past deeds as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation ascetic could not be legitimately applied to them. This was my first legitimate confirming falsehoods of those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view. A view that whether pleasure or pain are all caused by God's creative activity. Then monks, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins who sold such a doctrine and view as this, whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine and view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation ascetic could not be legitimately applied to them. This was my second legitimate confirming falsehoods of those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view. A view that whether pleasure or pain all occur without a cause or condition. Then monks, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that occurs without a cause or condition. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine and view? When I asked them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is without a cause or condition that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on absence of cause and condition as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded. They do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation ascetic could not be legitimately applied to them. This was my third legitimate confirming falsehoods of those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view. All right. Thank you, Miranda. 
So here the Buddha is describing three different kind of wrong views about what leads to discontentedness. This first one that he's describing here is someone who believes or holds the opinion or the view that anything that they're experiencing now is 100% as a result of what happened in the past. If somebody has this wrong view, then there's nothing you can do right now to fix right now because everything that you're experiencing now is all based on the past. And that means that you're basically subjected to anything that's happened in past lives. And this isn't a right view. This isn't the truth. But there's some people in the world that hold that view. They think that whatever they're experiencing in their mind or in their life is all based on their past lives. So basically they just kind of give up and become complacent and they think that there's nothing that they can do in order to improve their life right now. And that's why the Buddha uses this speech here where he says, okay, well, if everything that you're experiencing is based on the past, is it because of the past that you destroy life right now? Is it because of the past that you take what is not given, that you indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, that you have argumentative speech, you speak harshly, you have idle chatter, your mind is full of longing or craving, your mind has this ill will or this anger, hatred, ill will, and holds wrong view, which is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Is all of these things that you're experiencing right now really because of the past? But because right now you're doing these things right now. And then that's why you're experiencing the certain results that you are. And then the second one that the Buddhist describing here is some people hold the opinion, the view, the belief that everything that they're experiencing is caused by God. And the Buddha is essentially going to the same discourse and saying, you know, essentially that what you're experiencing is not because of God. And the way that he helped them to see that is by that using that same discourse and saying, you know, is it because of God that you're doing all these unwholesome things? No, of course not. You're doing them because of your own condition of your mind. And then the third one that he talks about here is he talks about what you experience in terms of pleasure, pain, and neither pain nor pleasure is that without any cause or condition, meaning it's just happening by accident. It's just happening by happenstance. And once again, there's certain people in the world that think that way. They don't understand the dependent origination and they don't understand the natural law of gamma. They don't understand the causes and conditions that lead to the condition, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. So they think that it's just kind of by accident or happenstance that these things are occurring. And if somebody has that view, they're not going to get to enlightenment. If they have any of these views, they're not going to get to enlightenment. They need to deeply understand what's truly causing discontentedness in order to eliminate it. You wouldn't be able to eliminate discontentedness if you didn't know what was causing it. So he says that this view or these opinions, these beliefs are so illegitimate that somebody who thinks this way wouldn't even be able to be considered a aesthetic somebody who's actually on the path to enlightenment someone who's an aesthetic during the lifetime of the buddha is someone who's on the path to enlightenment so the buddha is saying if you truly feel this way or you truly believe this that this is the truth then you're not even an actual aesthetic. You're not actually even on the path to enlightenment because you haven't even essentially studied the very first thing, 
which is the Four Noble Truths to establish right view. If you aren't understanding that it's craving, desire, attachment that leads to discontentedness, and you think it is one of these other three that he's mentioning, he's saying you're not even on the path to enlightenment. And then because of these wrong views, he's saying that their mind is muddled. They have this muddled mind. This is essentially lacking concentration, lacking clarity. Because the mind doesn't know true reality, it's lacking this clarity because if somebody doesn't understand that it's craving desire attachment that's causing discontentedness, that means the mind is still ignorant or unknowing of true reality of that. So that means the mind is going to be bombarded with lots of craving desire attachment and that burdens the mind and that hinders it from experiencing concentration. So as you're training the mind and you're eliminating craving desire attachment, this is what produces higher and higher degrees of concentration in the mind. But for somebody who doesn't even know that craving, desire, attachment is the problem, then they're not working on fixing it. So therefore, their mind is going to be lacking concentration. That's what the Buddha is saying here is that they're lacking concentration. They're muddle-minded. And the reason why is because they don't know what craving, desire, attachment is. They don't know that that's what's causing the discontentedness. And they're just kind of sitting around thinking that it's these three things, that it's all that they did in the past that it's either God or that there is no cause and condition. It's just happening by happenstance. So they're not focused on the real problem. So that's why they're not getting any results. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. Well, that's everything that we had to discuss today in terms of the chapters. Thank you all for coming to class. We're just getting through chapters 11 through 20 and the next set is chapters 21 through 31 in this book lowly arts volume 12 you can download this from buddhadailywisdom.com and you can read it online or you can take it and go print it or you can order a copy off of amazon and you'll be able to have a printed version that way if you'd like to have a printed version because it really does help to study them before and to be sure that you look at the descriptions of what I've described as part of that teaching because the words of the Buddha are outstanding. They're very clear. They're very concise. They're very precise, but it really helps to have someone who's a dedicated practitioner and teacher that's helping you to further understand it. But then you shouldn't believe the Buddha's words. You shouldn't believe my words. Instead, do your own investigation, your own independent verification, looking to see what is the truth through your reflection and through your practice and where you need help to understand these, then that's what this class is for. That's what the Facebook group's for. That's what private message or the personal guidance that I do. That's what those things are there for, for you to reach out to get help. So tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in the very back of the book of volume one, finishing up that particular book where we're going to be covering the frequently asked questions. There's 11 individual questions. There's kind of a miscellaneous bunch of questions that didn't really fit into any particular part of the book, uh, but they're common questions that students typically have. So I group them together and put them at the back of the book. And there's a section back there that is how to determine if you have attained enlightenment, because this is something that you will be interested to understand is 
after you do all this work, how do you know whether you actually have gotten to enlightenment or not? So I'm going to be discussing those things in tomorrow's class in the group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to join any of these classes online. And I also teach these classes here in Chiang Mai as well. So if you're in Chiang Mai, you're welcome to visit the temple where I teach and learn them in an in-person class as well. So thank you all for your dedication. Thank you for your learning. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.